there's a single formative lesson that you learn spending time in the outdoor, it is that there are so many huge giant forces that are out of your control. Hey, I'm really excited to announce that we're hosting our fifth annual Unbeatable Minds Summit on December 1 to 3, 2017, right here in Carlsbad, California. Now, last year we had an amazing lineup of guests. My friend Rob Wolf, Jimmy Chin, Ben Greenfield, Jesse Itzler, and others. And this year we're going to have an Unbeatable lineup as well. As a thank you for listening to my podcast, I'm offering you a $250 discount if you want to attend this year's summit. Simply go to summit.unbeatablemind.com, that's summit, S-U-M-M-I-T dot unbeatablemind.com, and enter the discount code unbeatable250, unbeatable250. That code expires on May 29th, so get busy and go enroll today. Trust me, this event is a life changer. Hoo-yah. Hey folks, welcome back. This is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Thanks again for joining me. As you know, I don't take it for granted because there are 10 billion and one things vying for your attention. So the fact that you're listening to these words is really very, very cool. You know, I often have talk about some of the things that are going on, but I always forget to um, remind or to tell you that one of the coolest things we have going on has actually been going on for about five years, and that is the Unbeatable Mind training program. And my team said, hey, can you at least mention that once on your podcast? And I said, yeah, why not? I don't know why I haven't. And we have a free trial. So the first whole month you can get for free. I mean, if you wanted to download everything and never come back, you could. But my sense is that if you're not engaged in Unbeatable Mind, you're going to want to be. So go to unbeatablemind.com slash free trial and uh, check it out. So Unbeatable Mind Academy is our online integrated training where we develop the five mountains of physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and spiritual capacities and endeavor to get to what I call the fifth plateau of consciousness. And you're going to have to figure out what that is by going and checking it out. At any rate, so unbeatablemind.com slash free trial. Now, my guest today... I met through his recent book called Seventh Scent, which I got to tell you was, was just a real timely eye-opener, fantastic uh, read. We're going to talk about that. And it's Joshua Cooper Ramo. Joshua um, is a, kind of an iconoclastic guy. He's the co-CEO of Kissinger Associates, which is Henry Kissinger's organization. Uh, I'm kind of anxious to hear what they do. He's an author of another uh, really good book called The Age of the Unthinkable. He's a former youngest um, editor, foreign editor for Time magazine. And what's cool for me and for Unbeatable Mind peeps is that he's also kind of an adventurer as an avid pilot and uh, used to be a competitive acrobatic pilot. So uh, he splits his time between New York and Beijing. And I think today we're speaking to you from New York. Is that right, Joshua? That is correct. I'm in New York City today. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And why don't we start, you know, I'd like to, as I mentioned before we started, um, just kind of just have a, a fun conversation, but it's always interesting for, you know, the listeners to kind of know the character of the individual that we're talking to. Uh, you know, they w- you wouldn't be on this call if we didn't have some really extremely interesting background and a deep character. And so what were some of your like early influences in life that kind of set you on the path that you're on today? You know, I think it's very interesting, and 
first of all, let me say also, it's a pleasure to be with you and really appreciate the time and, and, and hope this is of use to your listeners. I mean, just in following your work, it's, it's interesting to see that there's an audience of people out there in the world who are asking themselves constantly, how do I improve myself? How do I sharpen my tools yeah. to get to where I want to go? It's and gratifying. I think a it? lot of us are. Yeah, it is. And I think a lot of us are asking those questions. And I think they're important questions right now because we're, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but just the world around us is changing in such mm-hmm. uh, astonishing and potentially dangerous ways mm-hmm. that the question of what can I do to make the world a better place and how do I prepare myself for that journey I think is one that a lot of us are going to have to be asking ourselves. Okay. So I think there's a, you know, this is not the 1990s where, you know, everything was fine. The cold war was over and, you know, we could mostly just focus on getting six pack abs. Right. This is about preparing <laughs> yourself for a very different kind of journey. And so it's, uh, I, I very much appreciate what you're doing. It's been helpful to me. And, uh, you know, it was great to have a chance to, to, to be a part of this yeah. in terms of early influences. You know, it's interesting the way you talk about the kind of the five mountains. I mean, I think for me, I, so I grew up out in New Mexico, mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time in the mountains. Um, I, you know, was not somebody who was particularly interested in school. Uh, I was interested in books and reading mm-hmm. and camping and being outdoors. Nice. And you know, I think a lot of the, you know, if there's a single formative lesson that you learn spending time in the outdoors, in addition to you know, be prepared, have the right stuff, you know, get your skills mm-hmm. together, it is that there are so many huge giant forces that are out of your control Mm -hmm. that can determine success or failure or experience um, in any given moment. And I think particularly, I don't know if you spend any time in New Mexico, but the, Mm, you know, New Mexico, we have this, it's an incredibly beautiful state with an incredible diversity of terrain, you know, everything Mm -hmm. from the deserts in the South to the kind of Southern part of the Rockies in the North and these big giant skies where every day you just see, you know, the summer, for instance, these massive thunderheads building up and it's a humbling place to grow up. Oh uh, it makes you yeah. realize, you know, the smallness of the individual against that larger background. So I think the thing about, you know, operating in the outdoors is it does give you a kind of confidence that I think translates into a lot of different areas of, of your life. And I don't mm-hmm. think, you know, people sometimes mistake, they think, oh, it's a confidence of, you know, great, you know how to start a fire in a snowstorm, but I really don't think it's that. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's not a tactical confidence so much as it is a sense of kind of where we all fit um, in the world and that everything we do has to be in accordance with, with nature. Right. Um, and you can approach that any number of ways. You can approach that through, through Taoism, you can approach it through Christianity, mm-hmm. you can approach it through, you know, just your basic instincts towards life. But I think that kind of internal alignment, no matter what you want to do in the world, and that sense of kind of harmony from inside to outside is something that becomes very apparent when you're spending time in yeah. the outdoors. You know, sometimes you're, you're miserable and you're slogging and you're freezing. And I mean, it's not just, it's not about having a happy go lucky experience, but you are working your way towards these moments of mm-hmm. total alignment between yourself and the environment. And I, I, that sounds like we're talking about, you know, camping or being outdoors, but the reality is for me, what, what it really is about is that's as true for the political, economic and social environment that you're in as it is for the natural environment. Yeah. You know, um, that 100% resonates with me. In fact, I'm working on a new book, uh, as well now. And the first chapter I call awakening and I talk about an experience I grew up in the Adirondack mountains, which is also very different than New Mexico, but also incredibly beautiful in its own way. And I talk about an experience I had one day alone, you know, just kind of like cruising up a mountain, you know, and, and getting to that utter place of exhaustion and just freedom. And then having, you know, like a, a radical awakening moment on top of that mountain where it was, I think the first time that I had a, 
like a shift in perspective where I, I saw, I saw my life as a story instead of my life, you know? And so, and I, yeah. I experienced yeah. my consciousness separate. The only, and, you know, the things that I experienced later through my Zen practice and yoga and everything were, you know, very similar to that, but it was, it was nature that caused this yeah. alignment, this, this, you know, rupture in the time space continuum, if you will, fascinating, unbelievable, changed my life and set me on a new trajectory. So I a hundred percent get what you're saying. Like nature is the force to be reckoned with, you know, all the time in the ocean, like what an incredible teacher the ocean and the mountain is. But then that, yeah. that kind of integration experience, if you spend a lot of time helps you appreciate that everything is in some sort of interconnected balance. Like you said, whether that is an economic system or political system or a global network system, right? There's some, right. there's some That's sort exactly of balance right. there, but it's always striving. It's hard to put your finger on, right? Cause it's a chaotic balance. Interesting. Yep. And it can't, nature can't be replaced. I mean, I think probably like you, you know, I've been in the most powerful rooms in the world. You know, mm. I've been, you know, in all these places, the white house, the, mm. you know, the Kremlin, the Jungnan high in Beijing. I mean, all these places. And, and these are really the, you know, wall street, the constructs of man. Mm. And they, they have a certain energy about them, mm -hmm. but there is nothing more powerful and, you know, nothing that's a better teacher than the experience of the, of nature. Cause that's really yeah. why we're all here. We're all a product of that. What, one of the things, and I'd like to have you comment on this. One of the challenges I see is that modern man uh, either has forgotten that or thinks that they've grown beyond that and that they're, they're in control now. Like they, that nature yeah. is not important and that these people who, who inhabit the halls of the white house and, and the Kremlin and, you know, wherever wall street uh, are kind of gods. Right. And I don't think that's accurate. Right. I think that when, when people try to be gods, they get smacked down, you know? Yeah. There's much bigger forces. And I think you've got to be very modest about right. these things. I mean, uh, there's a famous line of Otto von Bismarck, who was a, you know, one of the great statesmen of the 19th century where he describes, you know, he says the life of even the greatest statesman, all you can do is hope to hear the footsteps of God and grab onto his coattails as he pass, passes by. It's that use of the larger forces, the historical forces that are churning around you that really determines success. And, and that's, you know, what I was trying to get at, you yeah. know, in, in the book and the way I think about the world, which is, you know, all of us can go about our lives. And I was saying earlier, we're not in this kind of 1990s, happy, easy globalization right. period. I right. mean, anybody who reads history or is aware of things, there are from time to time these cataclysmic shifts in the international system bring tremendous tragedy and disorder and mm -hmm. struggles and challenges and demand for the kind of, you know, services you, you rendered as a, uh, as, as a Navy SEAL and mm -hmm. demand for great diplomacy and all these other sorts of things. And I think we are at one of those mm -hmm. moments. Yeah. And in order to understand that, you really have to have this sense, what are the larger forces at work here? What is churning away? And if you know and own that inside yourself, which is this idea, um, you know, I call seven cents being called whatever you want. It's just understanding why the world feels so chaotic right now. I think that then empowers you to then go use all these skills you can find in other ways. Yeah, exactly. I want to come back to, you know, that, that whole topic in a little bit, but I, I think that you sure. know, once, once we go down that rabbit hole, we're never coming out, but, and I, and we'll never yep. come back to this, the, the risk taker in you that, that got into, um, you know, competitive acrobatic piloting like that sounds fascinating and you know scary a little bit even for me as a navy seal i, I did one barrel roll in a in a um oh gosh what was it i forget the name of the plane my friend brandon webb had it and it was wickedly cool yeah. it scared the shit out of me 
So how did you get into that? Yeah, well, that's probably because you weren't flying. You had somebody else handling the control. No, he gave it to me. I did a full-on. Oh, he did. All right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, But I tell you what, man. God bless you. I know. It was fascinating. But um, so how did that come about? Like, how did you get into that and... And, uh, and then go from there to being a journalist. You know, I always uh, had wanted to fly. I think, again, uh, you know, just New Mexico, you're looking at the skies all day, and it's uh, impossible not to think I want to get up there and be in those big fluffy clouds. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I left uh, home and had a job where I could afford to pay for flying lessons, I immediately started flying. And once you start flying, if you're a particular kind of personality, you want to see if the plane can go upside down and what else it can do. And so, you know, I sort of was on that path pretty quickly. And it's a wonderful, I mean, it, you know, there are these moments where it's just you and the airplane and you got to decide what you're going to do. So it's uh, it's a tremendous kind of personal adventure and experience, to be honest. And then the competitive element of it is great. It's always great to have a chance to sort of match your skills against other people and uh, sort of push yourself as far as you can. Yeah, what does a competition look like if you're an acrobatic pilot? The competitions look like there's basically, uh, you know, it's not dissimilar maybe from gymnastics in the sense that there's some part of it that is kind of a set routine if you fly a particular way and fly a particular pattern that's scored by judges on the ground, and then there's a mm-hmm. period of it that's sort of a little bit of a freestyle period. I see. But the essence of it really comes down to the practice. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, how do you refine the skills over and over and over again. And, you know, what's particularly interesting about it, the book I wrote about her, my aerobatic experience is called No Visible Horizon, mm. and which is a, a, a flying term. You know, there's some days you can see right. perfectly well outside and some days there's no horizon. And what's amazing is so in order to fly acrobatics well, you've got to have a sense of up and down and where the horizon is. Right. But there are guys who have such a finely balanced sort of internal compass and sense of up and down that they can fly on a day with no visible horizon just as well as they can on a day where everything is clear outside hmm. because they are, they've refined their flying skills to such a degree that inside themselves, they know where they are. And that's particularly important when you get to sort of very higher, you know, higher level challenges in aerobatics where you often have these maneuvers where the plane is moving so quickly, or for instance, if you're pointing straight up and you have to roll the plane 360 degrees and stop every, um, you know, make an mm-hmm. eight point roll. So make eight stops around that thing you can't really look outside to check where you're going. If you look outside, you're going to become disoriented. And so it's entirely based on this complete internal alignment. And that's an extraordinary, almost sort of Zen-like accomplishment of having that, you know, you're flying the plane, but the reality is, you know, you're just sort of there moving everything with your mind. Yeah, I totally get that. In fact, I was thinking while you were describing that of like the Zen master or the martial arts master who, you know, who challenges his students to fight him with a, with a blindfold on, you know, and, and yes. he can sense. Yeah. Do you know the book Zen in the Art of Archery? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that wonderful scene where the guy just yeah. was one arrow after another right in the center of the target, splitting the other arrows. I know. Boy, I mean, that's just such a wonderful way to go through every challenge that you have in your life with this total internal sense of direction. Right. No kidding. Now, what drew you to um, the Far East, you know, from New Mexico? Because when I got from your book, Seven Cents, you, you spent a lot of time yep. over there and you lived there for a number of years. Yeah. I mean, I think I was initially drawn to the to the philosophy of the East, I think, sort of like you. And right. my first exposure to it really was through uh, through Buddhism and Zen in particular, which I began studying when I was a, a teenager. Okay. Uh, but then, you know, as my life progressed, I, uh, I you know, became a journalist. I was a foreign editor of Time Magazine, which kind of let me travel all over the world. And as soon as I actually got to Asia, 
I just was aware of that I was in the presence of a whole set of ideas and a whole way of looking at the world that was very different than anything I'd ever experienced. So when I left, journalism decided to have a little bit more of a commercial life and go into mm -hmm. business. I knew I wanted to move to Asia, and particularly I, I had a feeling that China was going to be a very important place mm -hmm. to be. And so I, you know, moved to China, learned the language. But, you know, before I moved there, somebody said to me, as important as being bilingual is being bicultural. Mm -hmm. And that was just spectacular advice because, uh, you know, I moved there. All my friends are Chinese. Uh, you know, I spent very, you know, maybe had five dinners in the 12 years I lived full time in Beijing with foreigners and mm -hmm. really tried to get as deep as I could into into the culture. And, yeah. you know, I'm a very different guy than the guy who moved to China. The experience really changed me. Uh, and it continues to change me. It's yeah. just a, a completely different way of looking at the world. Yeah. That's interesting. I want to, I want to explore that a little bit because as a SEAL, you know, we would do language training, but we also understood that the language didn't teach us about the people. And so, you know, we needed to yeah. kind of immerse ourselves in the culture so we can understand you know, not again, I think what this is just what you're alluding to, not from an external perspective, but literally put yourself into the mind of, yeah. you know, that individual, that, that culture. So did you actually learn, you know, describe what it's like to learn how to think like a Chinese, you know, citizen or man. And then what did that teach you? Like, how do you see the world differently than say I do? Because you, you know, you think Chinese. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, at the end of the day, you've got to be very modest about it. I mean, I yeah. still am uh, a Westerner, and there are still many days where things happen where I'm like, whoa, that, what did, where did that come from? <laughs> right. But there's a lot of um, differences in sort of the way of kind of looking about or thinking why things happen, why things are kind of true or not true. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that uh, yeah, I spend a fair amount of time doing, for instance, is uh, in having negotiations with Chinese on various issues. Mm -hmm. And you just find that the approach is very different, that it's not about let's work our way through the details and then we'll get to some conclusion. It's actually, let's start with the end in mind. Let's right. see if we can get alignment about where we're going. Hmm. And then after that, we can work out the details. And that reflects a culture that's much more has kind of a collective instinct to it than this individualistic you versus me instinct. Mm -hmm. And the idea is if we can agree in advance where we want to go, that then puts us on the same side of the table for the negotiation as opposed to kind of fighting our way through it point by point. Right. So, I mean, that's a difference. There's any number of differences just in terms of, you know, for instance, you know, how do you think about, you know, explaining things to people? Chinese tend to have much more of kind of a broader view of the world where they're drawing together a lot of pieces of the puzzle and kind of having a moment where things start to make sense as opposed to walking through everything logically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the word in Chinese, lo ji, uh, for logic is something that came into the language relatively late. So that's awful, oftentimes mm -hmm. kind of baffling to Westerners. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean, you know, I always say that two things that take the longest in China that are most surprising to Westerners are giving directions to a taxi driver and ordering dinner. And it's not that you can't say to the taxi driver, go to that corner and make a left. It's just that the process of explaining to them is you'll say, go to the corner. And he'll say, oh, that corner up there. And you'll say, make a left. And he'll say, you know, after 300 feet, I make a left. You just keep going back and forth. <laughs> but then finally, once the guy understands where you're going, he completely understands it in a deep way. It's like right. he's building this kind of collage of information. And then the whole thing fits together in a, in a, in a complete picture. Interesting. And what is there? Yeah. So, and there's just endless number of these things. I mean, this is why it's kind of constantly gripping to be over there. Yeah. I can talk about China all day. Yeah, I bet. One more though, because this particularly interests me is how cultures deal with the concept of time. Now I know like at a, at a, you know, systemic level, they've got a hundred year plans and their, their concept of time is much broader than ours. And so how did you yeah. experience that? Did that change your mind? In well, you, you experience that all the time. I mean, I think it gets back to a very 
core difference about thinking about the role of the individual. You know, it's interesting in China, as you may know, in China, China when you're meeting people or people are introducing themselves, Chinese family names are the first part of somebody's name, not their individual name, right? So like Mao Zedong's family was the Mao family, and the first name is Zedong. And the fact that the family name comes first mm-hmm. instead of, so it would be like divine mark, right? right. That it's, it says what's most important about you is where you come from, what family you're a part of. And you, the individual, are kind of of secondary importance compared to that. And so that immediately puts the individual in, in the kind of the context of a much longer history, mm-hmm. that it's not simply about yourself. It is about this larger, particularly the family unit in China, tends to be so important. Mm-hmm. And so that reframing of things really impacts this vision of, of time, when it's not mm-hmm. just about you and your own life, but mm-hmm. about your ancestors, about your children and their children. That changes the nature of any calculation that you're going to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very important distinction. Especially if you look in Chinese history, one of the, the problems in Chinese governance going back thousands of years was how do you have accountability for the emperor, right? There's no mm-hmm. election. There's no, uh, there's no parliament that can get rid of the guy. And so in China, for a long time, they always had this system that was known as the court historian system. Mm-hmm. And the one person the emperor was not supposed to mess around with was the guy who sat in every meeting taking notes. If you've ever been in meetings with Chinese, you'll notice they're often meticulous note takers. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the meeting will be writing things down. And that's a, that's a cultural Thing about kind of recording things. Mm-hmm. And the idea of this court historian was that that person, because every word that the emperor was saying, every decision was being recorded for posterity, created a kind of accountability for mm-hmm. future generations, an accountability mm-hmm. that you might have if you had a Congress, but they didn't have a Congress. But knowing that your actions would be judged and considered by future generations hmm. is an extremely important and very different sort of instinct. And it's very relevant even on super contemporary political issues, you know, questions of Taiwan, right? right? So that the right. Chinese leaders know that if they're the ones who lose Taiwan, they will be cursed for thousands of years. It's not a <laughs> simple transactional right. trade-off. So these things right. run a lot, a lot deeper, and that conception of time is is very different. And the nature of how things get done, and one thing that often you know, we'll say in the process of Chinese negotiations is often you will have these experiences where nothing happens for 11 months. Right. It's like you're making no progress. And then in the 12th month, everything happens at once. Once you have reached that sort of conceptual alignment, things can move very, very quickly. But it's very different than the Western kind of step-by-step, we're going to get there sort right. of approach. So Linear, you know, yeah. these are examples of just, just sort of differences. The other thing I'd say about it, by the way, is... It, it, almost everything you can say about China, the opposite is often true in some cases. And so one of the real tensions about Chinese society at the moment is when you're doing business there or operating there, you find there's an awful lot of short-term. It's, the people are traders. They're not strategic in their thinking about what they're doing with their business. They're just trying to grab the opportunity that occurs uh, in front of them right now. So huh. it's important to understand that every every you know Chinese person you run into on the street who's running a, a chemicals business or a pharmaceutical business, they're not sitting around thinking about how it's going to play out over thousands of years. The nature of kind of economic development there for the last 30 years has rewarded the people who grab the short-term opportunity and make the most of it. So one of the other things about China is kind of that ability to hold contradictions in your head without, without going bananas. That is really interesting. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Ample Meal. Now, Ample is a new entrant into the meal replacement market. So essentially, it's a healthy meal in a bottle. What I love about Ample is this is so much more than just a protein shake. It is a complete meal, including fiber, healthy fats, protein and carbohydrates, 
all in a very convenient plastic bottle that you just shake it up, add water, shake it up, and then you drink it. And not only do you get hydrated, but you actually get a really well-crafted 400 or 600 calorie meal for busy professionals and athletes and warriors on the go. This thing is fantastic. I believe it's going to replace the MRE for the military because it's healthy. It's actually made out of very, very healthy, non-GMO, nothing artificial. You know, the fats are from like macadamia nuts and, you know, all sorts of good stuff in this thing. So, Terrific, terrific uh, new option for those of us who train hard and are busy professionals and sometimes just literally have to grab something and go. So at least we're going to get a complete meal now with ample meal. And listeners can use the code UNBEATABLE if you go to amplemeal.com and for any order over 50 bucks, you're going to get two bonus meals with your order. So go to amplemeal.com, use the code UNBEATABLE for the special two bonus meals. And trust me, I use this every day now. It's, it's become my go-to and I love it. So Ample Meal is awesome. Thank you guys. Thank you, Connor, uh, for creating this cool new food source. hoo out here. Now, you met a, um, a Taoist master over there. Am I right? And Yes. Yeah. Taoist and Confucian. I mean, it's a okay. figure who uh, Buddhist really kind of held all of those traditions. Right. Okay. And he, and he was able to, or he was a kind of guy who, um, trained individuals, but also held court with, um, some of the, you know, some of the country's leaders. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things people don't appreciate about, uh, the depth of Chinese spirituality, uh, is that it does touch very much on even, you know, the most intently publicly, uh, communist, figures that are out yeah. there, that they are, they are Chinese as much as they are reflections right. of any Western political sensibility. And Nan Huai Qin, who was the master I was fortunate enough to get to know toward the end of his life, mm. was somebody who really embodied many of the deepest and oldest ideas of Chinese culture. So you can imagine if you're a sophisticated Chinese leader, you understand you're ruling the Chinese people. So even if you have the ideas of Marx and Engels in your mind, it's important to kind of get all the nectar you can from those very old and refined yeah. ideas. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I can just, even though I really love the idea of like Trump going and meditating and consulting, you know, a Taoist master, it's just hard to imagine. Yes. Hard to imagine. That ever hard to imagine. <laughs> yes. Hard to imagine him setting into a deep meditative state. Yeah, it'd be great for, great for the country though. So what we're, let's use that, the meeting with, and I won't be able to pronounce his name, but the Taoist master, your master, and some of the things that he taught you and said to you as a springboard to kind of get into this notion of network power and, and what you wrote about in the seven cents. Cause I think that's, you know, to me, sure. that's the most important thing for us to kind of talk about for, for the listeners to hear is what's going on and sure. how, how this, you know, how this master could foresee it, you know, because of his, the way his brain worked and his training and whatnot. Well, I think not merely foresee it, but also I just saw a point earlier about kind of the, the folks who are attracted to you world, your world. How do you train yourself to deal with that right. or prepare for that? How do you right. have that internal sense where you can sort of make sense of what's going on? You know, the, I think the, the line, so Master Nan, you know, in addition to being a student of, you know, Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism also, you know, was a deep student of history, which is the, the only mm -hmm. way to understand those, those three kind of great mm -hmm. Chinese philosophical traditions. And I, there was one thing he said to me once that very much stayed in my mind that, you know, I, I, I put into the book because again, the goal of the book really is to help people sort of make sense of all the chaos in the world today. Um, because I think there is kind of a single route to it. And what Master Nan said to me is he said, look, the, the, he said the 19th century 
with this moment when all these people were packed into cities and people were not really prepared for it. And the cities weren't prepared for it. And that led to these horrible outbreaks of pneumonia and disease and all these problems of, you know, poorly prepared urban areas. In the 20th century, we surrounded ourselves with all these artificial things. So that, you know, the, the dominant disease of the 19th century were all these epidemics and plagues and flus. So in the 20th century, we surrounded ourselves with plastics and all these other sorts of things. And so the diseases that came out of that were diseases like cancer, where mm-hmm. you know, parts of our body were turned against themselves. And in the 21st century, however, people's minds are going to be connected to a world of constant information into each other, and they're not prepared for that. And the mm-hmm. disease of the 21st century, he said, is going to be spiritual madness. Mm-hmm. And that idea that the human mind is simply not prepared by evolution or by experience for a world where we are constantly connected to forces that we can't see and often can't understand mm-hmm. is a really deep and powerful idea. It is upsetting in many ways, but it is also kind of a key to thinking about the future and just understand that every single day now we are more and more connected mm-hmm. to things that have an impact on our lives that we maybe don't understand or we maybe can't control. And that some of that is technology connection, just the internet and these kind of things. But what I really mean by this is being a part of financial networks and data networks and trade networks and all these connected systems that have a different kind of power logic than industrial systems had. Mm-hmm. That's apparent in everything from robots replacing jobs to the kind of stuff you can do on your on your smartphone. And understanding what that means and why those systems behave the way they do is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and the argument I make in the book is that what we're facing now, you can sort of think of the whole course of history. If you go back all the way in human history, there was sort of this period before the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution where you have many institutions, whether they were kings or popes or uh, alchemists, that were not based on anything we considered modern. And the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, really starting with, with Luther and running all the way through four or five centuries, demolished almost every institution that was built on that framework, right? The kings were torn apart. The myths were replaced by mm-hmm. science. And I think the shift we're undergoing now as a result of constant connectivity is every bit as big. And so as you look around the world today, what you see is that almost every institution that we grew up with and respected, whether that's the press or the Congress or science or business, the media, they're all under attack. You've never seen a period where the legitimacy of all those institutions at the same time is as low as it has ever been. And the reason for that is they're just built for a different era, uh, for a different logic of power and industrial logic of power. But at the same time, as you look around the world, there are clearly people who have sort of figured this new world out. There are, you know, the guys who started Uber looked at cars, and you and I mm-hmm. might have looked at a car and just thought that's a car, and they understood how that was changed as a result mm-hmm. of connectivity. Um, the guys in ISIS understand the way in which terrorism has changed as a result of connectivity. Right. And so what I try to do in the book is just sort of step-by-step walk through what is it these people see? What is it the people who are being successful now see and understand that the rest of us don't understand, and how can we learn that? That's terrific. So... What I love about the intersection here between what I'm doing and what you are working on in your writing is that I've been trying to train people, you know, from, let me uh, say it another way, as a, as a Navy SEAL, we train, you know, for the VUCA environment. And VUCA is a, a you know, acronym that's been around for years uh, in the military, but it's starting to be, you know, more well known in the business world. It's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And that's what you know. Yep. We're describing uh, now business being uh, looking a lot like a very complicated battlefield where you had to look for patterns and you know kind of flows and and like you said, network power versus you know the old days where we go blow up the radar tower, which was a fixed you know thing, which was yeah. a lot easier than than what we've been dealing with in uh, with ISIS and Afghanistan and Iraq. And so that's what right. I what I knew as a seal 
and have learned through my own martial arts and, and actually yoga and now seal fit training is that you can train to expand your awareness, right? To be, and to be able to focus yeah. better and to, to be able to radar lock on, on the patterns as opposed to the fixed thing. But it just, it takes a little bit of effort and you got to know the tools and those tools look a lot yeah. like the tools of the, of the Zen master, you know, even though we use yep, some more modern right. language and, and also we leverage some of the techno you know, things like I just did an hour and a half float before this thing. What an incredibly great tool, right? To be able to do sensory deprivation, yeah. you know, stuff like that. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, I think it gets back to sort of where we started the conversation thinking about nature, which is, you know, one of the points I make in the book is what is the difference between a complex system and a complicated system? Right so the world we came from was complicated. There were a lot of interacting parts, but you kind of knew the planes went here, the trains went here. Right. By complicated, we mean things that are sort of like jet engines, right? They have millions mm -hmm. of parts, but you can build them over and over again. They're very predictable. Yeah, you can take them Complex apart. systems, put them back together, exactly. Complex systems are very different. They are the result of the interaction of millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of uncountable pieces that begin to press and pull on each other in ways that can't be predicted or modeled in advance. And mm -hmm. chaos science teaches us a lot of that. But if you look at financial markets, if you look at what happened in terms of national security, we live in a world now where small forces anywhere in the system can have a huge impact. And that's because it's a complex system, right? It used to be if you wanted to cause a major national security disaster, you needed a big army to do that. Mm -hmm. And now it's possible, you know, just with a few lines of code to disrupt, uh, you know, the cybersecurity of any nation. So that requires a tremendous shift in our thinking that I think we haven't really made in, in any of the essential areas of economics or, uh, or finance or foreign policy yet. Nah, not even close. I mean, it's, it's just interesting. I mean, we're still linear and fixed and, and stuck with the bureaucratic institutions that are unable to, to think this way. I was down in uh, Congress just last week and I was giving a talk on my book, The Way of the Seal. And then mm -hmm. I, you know, I got paraded around Congress and it was all good intention, but I, I felt like kind of a pet, you know what I mean? I'm paraded around Congress handing people my books <laughs> and I, and I, and they were just running like, like their hair on fire from one committee meeting down to make a vote to, you know, to go shake someone's hand. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, my God, these guys need like a meditation bl block of time where yeah. they can all just stop and think about what the hell they're doing and, and get a little bit yeah. of a bigger picture. You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah and I, I would say you know, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say we just keep trying the same things and expecting different results, which was yeah, you know, the definition of insanity. No, it is, and I think it's you know, it's increasingly clear. I mean, we talk about why these institutions are less legitimate and respected than they've ever been. It's because they're not doing their jobs. I mean, almost right. every problem they undertake to deal with, they actually make worse. worse yeah. uh, you know, the most expensive war on terrorism in human history seems to be producing more terrorists. The most aggressive economic policy in human history is destroying the middle class. I mean, it's just blindingly obvious that there's not an understanding of the forces at play here. And, um, you know, by the way, I mean, history teaches us, we've seen this before. It's exactly what happened in the Industrial Revolution. You had a lot of people who thought it was a great idea to have, you know, one prince who had, you know, the number of serfs working for him for no money. And, you know, that didn't work out very well in the end. So <laughs> the sooner we can adjust to that. And, and I think what's unfortunate about it from my perspective is the more you try to understand this world, the more you understand the incredible possibility that's buried inside these systems. Sure. Once you understand yeah. them, once you apply this seventh sense, a lot of the problems we face now we could solve, but we just operate. I mean, one of the things I you know, have said and point out in the book is I sort of feel like the world right now, power is in the hands of sort of two groups of people. One is 
these sort of older, frankly, mostly, you know, white, white haired men in Washington, D.C. who do not understand anything about networks or how these connected systems mm-hmm. work at all. Mm-hmm. And power is also right now in the hands of a group of, you know, technical, technological folks on the West Coast for the most part. Yeah. Most of them are very young. A friend of mine who works at, you know, that runs one of these big tech companies said to me, the problem with our company is the most important people here are all under 25 years old. We don't really understand what it is they're doing. So mm-hmm. you've got this younger group that understands networks, but understands nothing about politics and economics and the social impact of what they're doing. Right. And the rest of us are just sort of stuck in the middle, getting pulled apart by them. And that really is the core political challenge of the next period, which is how can we get ourselves into the position where we understand enough that we can begin to claw back some of the power from right. folks who don't really understand what's at work in a way that we can kind of defend you know, the liberties and ideas and the things we care about. I think that's an eminently achievable goal. I'm not actually worried about it. I'm very optimistic about yeah. the United States' ability to do that, but we got to get to work on it. Yeah, I agree. Well, we've already seen how power, you know, how you know, social networks, let's say, there's a talk about network power, yep. has put power back in the hands of individuals. You know, when you look at Egypt and, and you know, some of the the power plays that are happening, even like right now what's going on in Russia. I mean, a lot of that is, is being pushed by social media and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and whatnot. And so, but I think that most people, at least here in the West have given up their autonomy to government for so long that now they don't think they can do anything. They expect the the big tower, the man in the white tower to solve their problems, you know? So it, it maybe it yeah. really is a generational thing, you know, and it, it does take the 20. Well, not years. only giving up their autonomy, but also increasingly giving up their data and their privacy. And, right, right. Um, you know, I mean, if you think about the most subtle political act, most of which we have engaged in in the last, you know, four or five years, it's putting all of our information in the cloud. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and we do that with a reason, right? Which is there's, it's, it's better. It's more secure. It's actually better for us. It's more efficient. And it makes mm-hmm. economic sense. But there's a lot of core questions about what does that mean? How, how how do you regulate the people who are now responsible for that data? How are they using it that we haven't yet come to terms with? And that's fine, but the technology's gotten a little bit ahead, I think, of our of our thinking about what our rights so. and obligations are. One of your peers, uh, Thomas Friedman, just wrote a book called um, Thank You for Being Late. Have you read that yet? Or, uh, I don't know. I, I haven't. I heard Tom talking about it somewhere, okay, so, so I, I got a sense of it. Yeah. So you probably, I mean, there were some overlaps. I, I had a sense that he had read your book and, you know, there was some, you know, there, there was a lot of like little synchronicity, but what he, one of the, the big points he made was that, you know, the internet was a big change, right? And he kind of wrote about that in his, you know, the world is flat thing. But he said that since 2007, when the cloud was kind of kind of quasi invented, that's when the real interesting things started to happen. Just kind of reinforce what you said. Now, you know, because we have this, you know, this kind of like, unbelievable ability to save all information in this networked ethosphere, which was different than saying that you're able to have point-to-point communication, which was what the original internet was, right? And so now you have AI that's self-learning, you know, and you have all this information out there. Like you said, there's no privacy. It's it's really a changed world and most people don't see it. You know, we're we're all being cooked like a frog, you know, slowly (laughs) heating up. Right, right. (laughs) And, and I think that's right. I mean, the fact is, as you look around the world today, the fact that everything from ISIS to the Trump election to Airbnb to financial volatility, the destruction of the middle class, it's all the same thing. It's all the it same thing. It is all the same thing. Exactly. It is all the power, the way in which networks are reordering political power, economic power, right. security power. And I agree with you. We haven't come to terms with it yet. Yeah. And it's just like the, it shows up as a pimple over here and a ward over there and you know, yeah. as a rash over same there. Thing. But it's all the same yep, thing. Yep, exactly. exactly. That is fascinating. 
really interesting. And I think it gets to the, you know, the one of the other points I was just going to make is that I think one of the things that's very interesting to me in the military in the last 20 years, as you know, they now talk about this idea of what they call the strategic corporal, right? Which is right. that even the lowest level soldier has got to have an understanding of the right. strategic environment in which they operate. Right. And so I think that's one of the points, you know, is you train folks to build the resilience of those five mountains, to build your, you know, your physical strength, your mental strength, your, to right. sharpen your intuition. You've also got to have that strategic view of here's that's what's right. going on and why, because otherwise you're going to fight the wrong war. That's right. Yeah, in fact, you just alluded to one of the, one of the reasons I started SealFit was to train Navy SEAL candidates to be what I call world-centric warriors, right? And so to to go out and to actually be able to make good decisions that are for the benefit of humanity and not just play whack-a-mole because, you know, you came you came from Texas and, you know, you hate ISIS, right? Which is a fairly yep. linear yep. thought, right? And I don't know if it's having an effect. This podcast episode is brought to you by Organifi. Now, we all know that Green juice is good for us, but juicing is a pain. It costs a fortune and it's super time consuming. At least that's my story. Uh, I don't juice. So that's why I opt for Organifi green juice as an alternative because it's super easy, super tasty. It's an organic superfood green juice powder. Just add it to your water and stir it up. It dissolves almost immediately. Drink it and it will help sustain your energy throughout the day. It'll reduce stress over time. And best part is it really tastes good. So check it out. To get your micronutrients from a superfood green juice, use Organifi. I think stuff is great. Go to Organifi.com and these guys are super generous. I know the founder and they have offered a 20% discount to you on your order. So go to Organifi.com, use the code unbeatable at checkout and get 20% off your order. And uh, that link is also listed below in the show notes to this episode. Organifi.com. Hoo-yah. But let me ask you a question about that, if, sure. if you don't mind, because I'm very curious about that from your perspective. I mean, how do you think about the problem of motivation? Because, I mean, there is, you know, you talk a lot about kind of get through the suck and all those other things mm-hmm. that, that we all know there has to be some, and I think for a lot of people it is, I came from Texas and I hate ISIS, let's go. And that's going to yeah, push them through. Right. As you've tried to study what it is that gets people motivated. I mean, in my world, I've noticed, you know, unfortunately, sometimes a lot of people are very well motivated. Anger pushes people constantly. Yeah. Yeah. What do you find is the most kind of reliable ambition fuel? Well, you know what? I honestly think this takes us right back to how we started this conversation what I teach and what my experience is a deep sense of belonging and knowing where you belong in the world. And what I mean by that is what, what we call a personal ethos. So, you know, to know why you're on this planet and what you're going to do about it, right? So not just to take yeah. because you're, cult, you know, let's say my family back home was deeply, you know, uh, right wing, you know, religious and they, you know, everyone, in the, you know, joined the family or everyone in the family joined the military. And we went off and we fought America's enemies. That is someone else's story, right? That's not my story. Yeah. have to be my story. And so, to, and this is where Zen and meditation and contemplation and self-awareness, self-study, which is such a big part of the Eastern traditions is so incredibly valuable because, you know, you can, you can dip in, you know, you can touch your, your deep inner sense, your essence or whatever you want to call it, your soul, 
and you can get that mm-hmm. information. So my experience with that was I was heading down the business path because my family was a business family and, you know, had a hundred year old business in upstate New York that made shit. You know what I mean? And, you know, frankly, mm-hmm. they're, they're probably not going to be around much longer unless they can figure out or, you know, get robotics in there themselves. But, and so I was right. going to, you know, I went down in New York, I went to NYU. I think you were an NYU grad yourself, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I got my MBA at NYU and I got my CPA and I was just charging along. And then it was uh, Kaicho, Grandmaster Nakamura, who got me to sit down on the meditation bench. And then it was Daido up at the Zen Mountain Monastery. You know, these are Japanese Zen traditions that got me yep. to spend, you know, days on end meditating with the monks. And through that process, it took several years, right? I woke up essentially to the fact that I was meant to be a warrior. I was meant to lead people on the you know, field of battle. And that, that showed up to me as, as a Navy SEAL. So I went from being a CPA to a Navy SEAL over the course of you know, two years. But that's what I'm talking about. And when I went into the SEAL teams, I had this deep sense of belonging. Like, this is where I need to be. Not because I wanted yeah. to go kill our enemies but because that's, you know, I needed to go lead our troops. Something did you like have that. a sense that you were trying to, I mean, when you hit those hard moments, are you trying to prove something to yourself? Are you trying to live up to, what's that thing that, you know, kicks you through that? The internal motivation for me, although I think a lot of that happens, that we have this, uh, one of our courses uh, is 50 hours of nonstop physical and mental training. And it's modeled after the Hell Week, mm-hmm. which is actually like 140 hours. And uh, what we ask people at the very start of that is, you, you know, tell us why you're here. What is your why? And we can tell, the yeah. SEAL instructors and I can tell when the student's why is locked on and aligned with like a deeper ethos. Or if they're just there to prove how tough they are, to prove something to their daddy or mommy or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's got to be deeply connected to, I think, you know, literally, like if, if it's true that we have a dharma, a soul's purpose... That's what I'm talking about is getting clear about what yeah. that is and then living that out. And that's the best motivation yep. in the world. If you're living yep. any, I mean, that's any what I reason, find. Yeah. Then, yeah, yeah. you're living a story. And, and, and it is a eternally renewing source of motivation. Having said that, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. As I go through life, I'm consistently amazed by how far anger and greed and yeah. hatred drive people. It doesn't produce the quality of life that either you or I would <laughs> it still like. It gets There's some results for are, sure. Yeah, yeah, but they're not people who are capable of sitting and lying in a field and enjoying the passage of clouds overhead. But wow, it is a when you're up against that. Yeah, but that that's one of the reasons why we've got such a you know such a mess is because you know everyone's driving for that yeah. self interest and they're not thinking. You know, we don't have any collective thinking like like the Chinese did the way you described it. You know, everyone. That's it's right. been very individualistic. And I believe that's a stage development of consciousness, either culturally or individually. You know, you go through self, then ethnographic, yeah, that's and then world-centric. That's a great world-centric, way to think about it. Yeah. and world-centric. Yeah. So if you can push yourself into the world-centric realm, it doesn't mean you still don't love your country. It just means you also re- recognize that, that we live in this kind of inner-latticed hole, and, you know, yeah. decisions that we make are going to have an effect on at a global level, you know? Right. Right. And we are not there. I mean, you know, yeah. unfortunately, we're without making a political statement. We're sort of at the opposite end of that. But I love the way you talk about it, which is to think about it as a cultural evolution, just like there's personal evolutions. And yeah. And it's, it's possible that, the, the, you know, when I talk to my friends, we think, hey, what, what's going on is it's necessary because you got to like, you know, yeah. we got to break the institutions in order for to create the fertile ground, you know, for it's like tilling the field. You got to create the fertile ground for the yeah. next next stage to kind of evolve or grow out of that. But it's going to, like you said earlier, it's going to, it's going to create, you know, this fourth turning kind of 
dangerous period in history. Like yeah. we're, we're heading into the one, of, one of the most dangerous periods of history that we've experienced probably ever, ever because of the destructive effect of, you know, of deforestation and desertification and nuclear weapons and who knows what's going to happen with nano fill in the blank. Right. Yeah, fill in the blanks. Right. Exactly. <laughs> wow. We're so positive. <laughs> no, actually, but I am taking something positive at the end of this, which is, I, I think your point is it is, this is a process that's right. moving somewhere. We're not stuck in this state. And then I think the question we all have to ask ourselves is what are our obligations? I mean, you know, we're, right. we came of age in a period where we enjoyed 20, 25 years of peace and prosperity. I mean, it's an extraordinary human accomplishment and uh, we've got to try to do everything we can to pass on to the next generation a period of prosperity and peace. Cause right. history tells you those things don't usually last very long. Yeah, no. And you think about, you know, humanity, right? Everyone, in the tribe used to have like a meaningful role and was instrumental in a protecting the tribe, protecting mm. the environment, you know, making sure that things kept cooking along. And then of course, as we got more complicated and, and started to group together in larger and larger, you know, patterns, then that all went away. And so I think that part of this is that for us to, to recognize that every individual, a has a voice, B has a choice to do something and see, you know, now is the time to choose to express your voice and, and get off your butt and yeah. do something. Because if we, because you're not powerless, essentially, you have more power than right. you've ever ha- had, but you feel that's exactly right. You feel almost powerless, but you have more power than you've ever had with the, yeah, you know, with the right. technology. So let's time, you know, now it's time for people to come together and, and to push back against. And in a way, that's why Trump got elected and that's why, you know, UK is leaving uh, the EU. But we can also, yeah. you know, now pull together and really push for some positive change and, and awareness development, you know? Well, I think this idea that we've kind of shifted in politics from the traditional left-right divide to this open-closed debate, which is, yeah. do you want to be open to the world or closed? Do you want to be connected or not connected? It's also true for each of us as an individual. And I think that the reality is we all are what we are connected to. Right. And even though that seems like a big statement of let's all get connected to the whole world, most of stuff, what it really begins with is yourself. You know, there's right. one of the things that one of Master Nan's favorite quotes is from the beginning of uh, Da Shui, which is the great uh, Confucian classic, mm-hmm. where it says that you know the emperor who wishes to uh, run the the world effectively must run his kingdom effectively, and he who wishes to run his kingdom effectively must manage his family effectively, mm-hmm. and he who would manage his family effectively must manage himself effectively. But if he manages himself effectively, he can manage his family effectively, and then he can manage the kingdom effectively. Right. So that sense of these it. kind of cascading levels yeah. of management, right. we are talking about a massive world where huge, unpredictable things are going to happen. But the ability to do that really comes back to whether you call it the five mountains or Zen training or whatever right. it is, that mastery of, of, of yourself. And I, you know, I think that, the, that is what we can control. Can we go on that journey? Yeah. Um, I'm still interested in your question, which is how do you stick it out through that journey? Because I think we all get to these moments where you just say, okay, I've had enough. I'm, yeah, well, for I'll leave you. Uh, you know, we can kind of uh, we've been going for a while, but I'll leave you with something that um Nakamura Great. used to say: "Is one day, one lifetime. One day, mm-hmm. one lifetime." Yeah, that has pro- pro- you know provided extreme motivation for me because I realize that all I've got to do is knock the ball out of the park today, and so in order to do that, I got to master myself. And then I serve others, yep. but not the other way around. I don't go serve others and then yep. try to master myself because it never happens. You know what I mean? So what I yep. mean by that is my morning ritual, my meditation and breath work, my workout, 
my visualization. In, I, I win in my mind. You know, that's our, one of the, the beautiful mind things. Win in your mind before you step foot in the battlefield. And then you go out and you kick ass and take names in service. But you only worry about today. You know, you have a vision for the future. You got your plans and goals and everything. But those are all set. You park them, you know, and then you just execute, execute, execute. And so it's just like a Navy SEAL going on a mission. You know what the mission is. You visualize it. You know you're going to win somehow. You don't really care how, as long as it's honorable. You know what I mean? You figure it out. You figure it out along the way. And then you focus on one task at a time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's been really, really helpful for me is just chunk it down to just one day. And then when it gets really hard, it's one, one hour or one evolution in our Kokoro camp. You know, some of these people, you know, they literally have to go one step at a time to get through the sticking points. One rep. One one rep at a time. Great. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So um, there's so much to learn by, you know, there's so much to learn by studying the Eastern masters. And I think that the, the reality is that it's the merging of East and West that yeah, really, right. really is the most powerful way to train your you know, whole mind system and to you know, start to feel complete and to be able to tap into that ethos we talked about, right? Yeah, it's not an accident. I mean, there's a yin and there's a yang. There's always right. a balance between That's right. different ways of thinking about things, and they're not opposites. They, That's right. they, they fill each other. So what do you do these days still for your own uh, training and development and self-mastery? Well, in fact, uh, and I got to run here a second because I'm just getting on a plane back out to New Mexico. Okay. So that's uh, one of the things I'm yeah, going to be go doing is going to the mountains. And yeah, I mean, I just find that as an infinitely renewing source mm-hmm. of, of energy. And then I think it is a matter of trying to get into the position where you are drawing as much energy from these changes as you can to, to fight the kind of fights you need to fight. Nice. And this is again, why I sort of asking you a little bit about how do you, how do you, when you've got that dharmic sense of where you're going, but yeah. you have a world that is filled with people who are motivated by hate and fear mm-hmm. and greed and understanding that, you know, the future is not determined, but that we each have an obligation to get out there and fight for the ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's where I spend a lot of my time these days. I think we are at a very pivotal point. I have, you know, very strong views about what we ought to be doing from mm-hmm. a foreign policy perspective and from an economic and political mm-hmm. perspective to get to where I think we need to go. Although I think one of the points is it is also emergent. Most of the questions we don't even know how to ask, let know the answer to, but, right. but I think we're starting to see them. And so it's an extraordinary time to be alive. Yeah. I mean, just the opportunity to be engaged in these questions is deeply humbling, but you see a lot of the people who have their hands on the, the levers of power right now, I think either don't understand what we face or maybe are not so well-intentioned or a little bit of both. Right. Well, that power will network away from them. It'll flow to, <laughs> to other directions. It will, hopefully not too violently. That's, exactly. That's, that's what you worry right. about. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Joshua. What an incredible honor it's been. Totally, Mark. Really glad to be connected. Likewise, and uh, enjoy your time up in the mountains, and I uh, hope to meet you in person someday. Easy to do. Yeah. Thanks, my friend. Take care. All right. Hoo-ya. Bye-bye. 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 All right. That was Joshua Cooper Ramos. Wow. What an interesting conversation. I feel like I was being interviewed for a little bit on that one. But um, as you can see, you know, from the theme of some of the the recent peeps that we've been uh, talking to here on the Unveil Mind podcast, we're getting into some pretty deep issues around, um, you know, how to organize yourself to deal with the world that we're in and uh, also some ideas on how maybe we can all band together and to be part of the solution. So, but I think ultimately the more and more I talk to thought leaders like Joshua, the more I realize that Unbeatable Mind and what we're dealing with, seal fit with our, you know, physical mental training 
and our Kokoro Yoga program, they're all um, extraordinarily powerful integrations of the yin and the yang, east and west, um, north and south even, and it works. And so you need to, you know, if you're not doing it, you need to get on board with a personal practice where you can begin to change your brain and, and activate your whole mind and expand your consciousness to a fifth plateau where you can take perspectives on the perspectives of the perspectives and uh, see these networks and see what's flowing in the world and get away from the fixed linear mindset um, of the past and uh, let's be part of the solution. All right, enough said on all that. Train hard, stay focused, develop that unbeatable mind and thank you for your support. You guys rock. Ooh, divine out. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly. But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now, and it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R, Dot com and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one, you won't be disappointed with quality.